And in a few minutes, we will come to Luke chapter 8. But I think we'll be a little better prepared for what we find there if we take a moment to remember what happened here in Isaiah chapter 6. Mount Hermon, to hear and understand the truths of God is a gift of His mercy. In the year that King Uzziah died, a man named Isaiah received a vision from God. He went to the temple to mourn the dead king of Judah and suddenly found himself before the king of kings. Uh, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. God is a spirit. He is invisible. He doesn't have a body like us. He cannot be seen by human eyes. That's what John 1.18 says. That's what 1 Timothy 6.16 says. But our invisible God sometimes chooses to reveal himself in visible ways. Think about the burning bush. Think about a pillar of fire in the darkness. And to Isaiah... God chose to reveal himself in a way that Isaiah could see something of God's glory. And what Isaiah saw was a mighty king sitting on a throne. Isaiah saw Adonai, the sovereign one. He was sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. How high? How high was this throne going? How high into the sky was this king? So high that the train of his robe, the hem of his robe, the bottom of his robe filled the temple. So picture that. This is, this is a, a massive throne. The temple was a big building. But this throne is stretching way up into the sky, far higher than the temple. And God himself, this king, is sitting on the throne. I, I kind of picture you know, Isaiah looking up into the heavens, right? He, he can't quite see the face of God. But he's, he's seen this, this figure on this throne that's full of glory. And what does he see around the throne? He sees these seraphim. These strange, heavenly creatures, six wings, two they're covering their faces, two they're covering their feet, with two they're flying. We're told that these creatures are so large, so powerful, that when one of the seraphim speaks, the temple shakes. What are they crying out in their booming voices? They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh of angel armies. The whole earth is full of His glory. So how does Isaiah respond to this awesome sight? What is his reaction to beholding God in in glory and holiness and brilliance and beauty? Does he run to this God, seek to embrace this God? Just the opposite. We find Isaiah crying out, Woe is me. I am lost. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah finds himself in the presence of the holy God, and he is experiencing awe, and he is experiencing wonder, but coupled with that awe and wonder is, I shouldn't be seeing this. Oh, no. Shame, guilt, this this tsunami of the weight of his own uncleanness before the Holy One just overcomes him. He cries out, woe, the word means doom, doom to me, I am doomed. He says, I am lost, and the word there means unraveled, I am coming apart. In the light of God's holiness, Isaiah's sin was being exposed in all of its grotesqueness before the white-hot purity of the king. Isaiah suddenly has all of his darkness revealed. He feels the weight of all that he has done. And what does God do? Well, this is happening at the temple. There's an altar Sacrifice has been made, a lamb has been slain. One of the seraphim, these are giant creatures, one of the seraphim comes down with a tongue and takes one of the coals from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips. Imagine the pain, the searing. What's happening here? Through the sacrifice of the lamb... The sins of Isaiah, and he especially felt the sin of his unclean lips. The sin of Isaiah is being taken away. Indeed, the seraphim says in his powerful voice, Behold, look, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So the Lamb points to our Lord Jesus Christ, the same Jesus that John the Baptist would see approaching, and he would cry out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. And So here's Isaiah, and his sins have been taken away, and now, having been redeemed by this king, Isaiah receives a calling. He receives a mission from the king on the throne. Isaiah hears the voice of the sovereign one speaking. It's the first time that the king speaks. The king says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah, in in the joy of his forgiveness and in reverent love for this awesome king, cries out, here am I! Send me! I love that. Because Isaiah doesn't even know what the mission is yet. He he doesn't even know what the calling will entail. He just longs to serve the God who has just saved him. And he longs to serve this holy one, this, this marvelous king upon the throne. He wants to serve. But we can imagine how Isaiah must have felt when he heard the following words about his mission. Look at them in verse 9. Verse 9. And he said, Go and say to this people, 
Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So we see that Isaiah is to be a prophet. That's the mission. That's the calling. We have the verb go. Isaiah is being sent by God. God says go. And we have the verb say. Isaiah, go, say. So Isaiah is to speak a message that God is giving him. But this is not a message of hope and salvation. God is to announce through Isaiah... That the people of Judah will hear God's message, but will not understand. They will hear it, but they won't really hear it. They will see it, but they won't perceive. Here is the effect that Isaiah's words are going to have on the people. He is going to call them to account for their sin. And he is going to ask them, indeed plead with them, indeed command them, repent before a holy God. And what is going to be the effect of Isaiah's calls to repentance? Their hearts will harden against him and against God. Their hearts will be made dull. Their ears will be clogged. Their eyes will be blinded. And that will be the effect of God's word. Mount Hermon, we we need to be reminded that God's word is powerful. And it always accomplishes the purpose for which God has sent it. Always. And sometimes that purpose is to bring someone to the love and mercy of God. But sometimes God's purpose in sending forth his word is to bring judgment. God sometimes uses his word to turn people away. To stiffen their resistance to him. So that they will not hear and they will not understand and they will not turn and be healed. Notice, if they turned, they would be healed. God will save all who turn to Him. Anyone who turns to God will be saved. But sometimes, as an act of judgment, God uses His Word to harden people even more so that they do not have the heart to turn. They do not have the will to turn. They will not turn and believe and be healed. It's a frightening reality. What a difficult calling God was giving Isaiah. At least He's telling him ahead of time. That's, that's grace. Can you imagine if God hadn't told him and Isaiah goes out and starts preaching and, and starts feeling this rejection? Reminds me of how God told Moses, Moses, you're going to preach and, and Pharaoh's not going to listen and he's going to reject you and be ready, Moses. So God's telling Isaiah, Isaiah, just know this is what's going to happen. Don't be surprised when they hate you. They're going to hate you because they hate me. Isaiah doesn't question the purposes of God here, but he does ask a question. Look at the question in verse 11. 
Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So Isaiah asks this question. How long will the people of Israel be under God's judgment, hardened by His Word? And the answer is, I'm going to continue to harden them, even through your preaching, Isaiah, until my day of vengeance comes. They will remain impenitent. They will continue to heap up their sins until the cup reaches the brim. And then I will come in judgment. And it will be horrific judgment because their cities will lie waste. Their houses will be empty. Indeed, God describes Israel as a nation, as a great tree. And he says that tree is going to be felled. It will be cut down to the stump. But this judgment will not be utter judgment because the stump will remain from which a new tree will come. God is telling Isaiah that even though Israel will be destroyed, she will not be completely destroyed. She will be rebuilt. She will return as a nation, which is in fact what happened. And all of this was to ensure that a day would come when the Messiah would come to earth in perfect fulfillment of all God's promises. So make sure you get the picture. God calls Isaiah to be a prophet to the people. He will preach. They will harden themselves against him until the day of God's judgment comes. Fast forward 600 years to Luke chapter 8. Turn to Luke chapter 8. Where the Messiah has come. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the true prophet of whom every other prophet like Isaiah was was just a shadow. And as we read this passage, we cannot help but feel some deja vu. Beginning in verse 4, this is the word of God, Luke 8 verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and People from town after town came to him. He said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell on the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Notice the 
the context here. Uh, by the way, next Sunday, we're going to start unpacking the parable of the sower. Today is just answering the question, why does Jesus in his ministry, especially at this point, suddenly start speaking in stories? Why does the bulk of Jesus preaching to the crowd suddenly become full of, full of parables? And, and Luke's gospel, more than any other, is going to give us so many parables. Why did Jesus speak to the people in parables? We are at the pinnacle of his ministry. We're, we're told that all of these people are coming. They're coming from town after town. They're, they're coming from all over. And at the pinnacle, he starts speaking, not plainly, not clearly, but in parables. And he ends his parables with the statement, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, everybody there had ears. But some people have ears and some people have ears. Meaning some people are just hearing, but they're not getting the message being communicated. Other people had ears to hear and they were hearing with understanding. They were hearing with spirit-given light to make sense of what Jesus was teaching. You can have two people in the same room, even a room like this. And the preacher is preaching, and one has ears to, to hear what's being said, and it affects them, and it makes sense for them, and it's changing them. And the other, it's, maybe it's the critic. That's not how I would have said that. Maybe it's the hungry person, wins lunch. <laughs> but whatever it is, they're not hearing what's being said. Really, this issue of having ears to hear goes back to having hearts to hear. That's what the parable of the soils is going to be about. As you come to receive the seed of God's word, are you coming with soil that's ready to receive it? Or is the condition of your heart different? Is it filled with other things? Or is it hardened already against God and Christ? Is it so in love with sin that it doesn't want to hear the truth? When we don't have hearts to hear, we don't have ears to hear. See God's sovereignty over this. See that God has the sovereign right to call some to hear and understand and believe. And he has the sovereign right to cause others to miss it. And to be left in darkness. And unbelief. That's what it means to be God. Why does Jesus begin speaking to these large crowds in parables? Stories are easy to be misinterpreted. When we read a story or we hear a story, we tend to interpret it through the lens to which we come to it, right? Which is why uh, Moby Dick is my favorite American novel. And you can read 40 different literature books where scholars right, try to interpret that book. And you get 40 different understandings of what it means, right? Everybody in the world has their idea. Well, the, well, the white whale must mean this. And, and Captain Ahab represents this. And, and Ishmael must mean this. And, and everybody's bringing their own agenda. So there's the feminist interpretation. There's the class interpretation. There's the Marxist interpretation. There's the theological interpretation. And everybody brings their own lens to the story. 
And in fact, anytime we're engaging with information, that's what we do. Even uh, this past week, I was in a, in a meeting with some folks trying to mediate some, some conflict. And there were some, some basic facts, but people were bringing their own perspectives to those facts and they were interpreting the facts different ways, right? One people were seeing the facts from this side and, and other people were seeing the facts from this side and, and they found themselves not on the same page. So you can imagine as Jesus is preaching to, to now huge crowds. I mean, these were the days when he's feeding the 5,000 and that's just 5,000 men. You can imagine women and children. So we're not talking about, you know, 50 people and we're not talking about 500 people. He's now preaching on, on, on mountaintops to thousands of people. And some of them are there as critics. All their neighbors keep talking about, oh, yeah, I'm going to go check this guy out for myself, see what's really going on here. A lot of people were there to see the miracles. Jesus had become a spectacle, right? They were there for the show. And then there were some, like the harlot a couple of weeks ago, who were coming because they knew they needed help. They needed hope. They needed a savior. And so as Jesus begins now speaking in stories, some people who come with the, with the heart that's already been prepared by God, they're going to have ears to hear and understand. And others, they're going to just read their own interpretations and they're going to come away perhaps even more hardened. The critic comes away saying, that's not the way I would have told that story. Notice what Jesus says to his disciples. They, they come to him, right? They, they ask, what, what's going on here? What did that parable mean that you just told us? And he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. And he quotes from Isaiah 6. So that seeing they may not see. And hearing they may not understand. Jesus sees himself as having an Isaiah ministry. Jesus understands that while there will be a remnant among the people of Israel who hear his word and believe, the vast majority of people will reject him. You see, we're still in the, the, the high points of Jesus' ministry. There are other days coming. When his followers are going to desert him. As Jesus speaks hard truths, his popularity is going to take a hit. And especially during the last week of his life, things are going to change rapidly. So that you have the crowds from town after town in Israel gathered in Jerusalem for Passover week. And what are they crying out? Crucify him! That's where they'll be. So Jesus sees himself as having come to preach the truth of God with the understanding that many, by that very word, are going to be hardened in their rebellion against God and their rejection of his truth. Before, with Isaiah, 
God hardened Israel in her sin until she became so full of it that God brought the Babylonians in great judgment, sent them into exile. They're weeping by the gardens of Babylon and along the banks of the river. But this is going to be a different judgment. This is a new generation, and this is going to be a far greater judgment. This time, Israel is not just going to reject a prophet named Isaiah. This time, Israel is going to reject the Son of God. Before, the master was sending his servants into the vineyard. Now, the master has sent his son into the vineyard to get things right, and they're going to kill him. What will the master do to those workers? Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows the story. He knows the plan. He will preach. They will reject him. And he will be crucified. And God is going to come in great judgment upon the nation of Israel. And this time, the nation of Israel will never recover. (laughs) The covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai will be brought to an end. There will be no more Old Testament Israel. This is the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke. But these were Old Testament days. They're still living under the Mosaic Covenant. They're still operating as the nation that was created by God and instituted at Mount Sinai. That's about to end with the death and resurrection of Jesus. God is going to raise up the Romans against them. And they're going to come and they're going to siege the city of Jerusalem. In 70 AD, it's going to be destroyed. Not one stone left upon another. The Israel that exists today, it is not this Israel. That Israel's gone. But, just like before, there would be a remnant. Just as in Isaiah's day, there were the Israelites, there were many that were spared and were brought back to their homeland. In the days of Jesus, there are those who are hearing his gospel and there are those who are believing. There are the disciples to whom it has been given to them where they hear the word of God in clear, plain language and they can understand the secrets of the kingdom. And there are those who are hearing the parables and God is giving them ears to hear. There will be a remnant. But notice the language Jesus uses. To you it has been given. If you have come to know and understand spiritual truths, that is a gift of mercy from the hand of God. And when you look around and you see so many people wandering around in moral confusion and spiritual confusion, trying to make their way through this life, caught up in slavery to their own sins and the desires of their flesh, and so ignorant of the things that really matter, you ought to say, there before the grace of God goes I. How did I come to know the truth? How did I get brought into the light? God gave you ears to hear. Five implications. Five implications. We'll go through them quickly. Number one, and most obvious, and yet sometimes the hardest for people to accept. God has the sovereign right 
to keep people from the true hearing of His Word. God does not owe the author of salvation to anyone. God does not owe anyone His grace or His mercy. If He owed it, it would not be grace. It would be due. It would be duty. We call it the grace of God because it's undeserved. And just because God offers it to one does not mean that He must offer it to all. He relates to every one of His creatures individually. He is the King. He has sovereign rights. Millions have been born and lived in rebellion and sin against the God of heaven and then died and never heard the gospel. And Romans 1 is clear that they are in judgment and will be eternally condemned and rightfully so. And God did not owe them an opportunity to be saved. Can you handle that? So what mercy has come to us? Application number two. Because God has the sovereign right to keep people from the true hearing of his word, we must not presume that we can neglect God's word right now and at some point in the future, we'll come back to it. I I know one day I want to be the kind of man or woman who's going to be mature and faithful and godly. I want to be that 50, 60, 70, 80 year old person who is walking in integrity. But hey, I'm 25. Let me go live, do some other things first. I'm going to make my testimony interesting. Right? There is no guarantee that when you're 50 years old and you've decided you're ready, that you'll come and hear the word of God and have a heart to receive it. Sin hardens. That's what it does. What does Hebrews 3 say? Don't let your hearts be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin fools you. Sin allures you. Sin gets you to come this way. And then it hardens your heart against God. It turns you inward on yourself so that you cannot receive what He gives. Probably, if you go out and live like you just follow your own heart today, when you're 25 years older, you won't want to come to church. You won't want to hear the Word. And if someone drags you along, you will sit there as the critic. Or as the one that just wants lunch. You cannot presume. Which means if you're hearing the word of God with understanding even right now, make the most of it. Implication number three. When you hear the word of God in a way that causes you to see your own sin and helplessness and that helps you to see Christ as glorious, praise God for that gift. See, I can hear somebody asking, well, well, Justin, how do I know, even right now, if I'm hearing the word of God rightly? Do I have ears to hear? I don't know. Am I hearing it rightly or am I bringing my own interpretation? How do I know if I'm getting the truth? Well, here's a help. 
If what you're hearing is causing you to have lower thoughts of yourself, but higher thoughts of Jesus, then you're likely hearing it rightly. And if that's what you're hearing, then you praise God for that gift. Because your ultimate happiness is bound up in you coming to see Jesus as glorious. You were created to be a worshiper of the Son of God. And you will never find true and lasting happiness until you take your place as a worshiper of Jesus. If you hear the word of God in a way that causes you to want to worship Him, to see Him as more glorious, then you're beginning to hear it rightly. Praise God for that. Experience that and receive it as a token of God's love towards you. This is what God does for those to whom He has placed His special love. He gives them ears to hear that Jesus is marvelous. So if you hear that and you receive that, receive that from God as a gift of His love. You're loving me, God, by showing me your son. Praise him. Application number four. We should approach the word of God with prayer and faith. Maybe it's morning Bible reading. Listening to the Bible on audio. Or sitting in a Sunday school class. Soon I. Maybe it's being in here. Do you take a moment before you come to the word of God and say, God, give me eyes to see and give me ears to hear. If you don't give it to me, I'll walk away from this Bible and I won't have gained anything or worse. Or worse. Father, help me to hear. And then, after praying that prayer, trust that your God loves to hear that prayer and he loves to answer it. So as you come to the word of God, having committed yourself to God and say, God, help me to see, help me to hear, help me to understand, then trust that he is working. Number five, let us invite others to hear the word of God. And as we do, let us pray that God would give them ears to hear. So Easter Sunday. You invite somebody, say, hey, look, I know you probably haven't been in church in a long time, and we're excited, we're kind of getting things slowly back to normal. Why don't you come join us at church on Easter Sunday? And, and they come, even as you pray for yourself that day, Lord, give me ears to hear. Pray for those who you've invited. Father, help them to hear. Help them not to scoff. Help them to believe. Now, we can have a role here as well. God uses means do you remember that Ethiopian eunuch? His chariot. He's got the book of Isaiah open in his lap. The scroll. And God brings Philip to him. And Philip says, sir, do you understand what you're reading there? How can I know if somebody won't help me understand? So Philip helps walk through the passage with him. Helps give him understanding. Tells him how all of these things point to Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Maybe, maybe you invite somebody to church on Sunday and, and you say, come hear the sermon with me and you pray for yourself and you pray for them that God will give you ears to hear but you don't stop there. You say, hey, come to my house for lunch afterwards. We'll, we'll have a good time. We'll grill hamburgers. We'll do something, right? And then as you're eating together, you say, hey, what did you get out of the sermon today? Right? What did you think of the sermon today? 
And it gives you that opportunity to come alongside that, that lost friend or that straying member and, and say, let's talk about it together. And maybe God will use you like a Philip. And as you begin to explain what maybe was left unclear to this person, God is giving them ears to hear and a heart to understand and the will to believe. How happy will it be in heaven to be able to see people there and to say, God used me in some way, in some little way, that they now know the glory of God in Jesus Christ. May we love the word of God. May we not neglect it. May we treasure it. But may we, God give us ears to hear. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.